0: Before we get started with the episode, I want to give a thank you to everyone who has bought my book, Beyond the Hunt, which was released earlier this spring, and let everybody in the Anchorage area know that I will be at Double Shovel Cider Company June 9th from 4 to 7 going to have some books there for sale, both my uh, my recent book, Beyond the Hunt, and also A Miserable Paradise Life in Southeast Alaska. So would love to to chat and uh, talk hunting and fishing and all things Alaska with anybody in the Anchorage area June 9th from 4 to 7 at Double Shovel Sider Company. Uh, if you've already b- bought a book, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you haven't, I will have some signed copies available, and looking forward to seeing you there. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Matt Bowen. He's the Southeast Alaska Community Engagement Manager for Trout Unlimited. Thanks for being on here, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you work for Trout Unlimited, but let's go back in history a little bit. Do you remember your first trout? Ooh,
1: boy. My very first one, I believe it was a steelhead on the Knife River on the North Shore of Superior.
0: Oh, okay. So so mis- Michigan action there.
1: Uh, Mi- uh, Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota, okay. I grew up near the start of the Mississippi, um, so I was I was exposed to trout and salmon, and on the superior on, on Lake Superior, um, not really recognizing the difference between hatchery fish and and where Pacific salmon are meant to be. <laughs> um, but uh, I thought it was pretty cool then, and it's still it, it's still kind of cool now. But um, I look at it a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, it's it's. Still really cool. You know, people yeah. talk about uh, catching, the, there's a run of, of Chinook in there too, right?
1: Yeah. And like there's Coho's and Pink's too. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Might as well. I mean, if you can make yeah. it, then, <laughs> then might as well. Yeah. Um. So when did you move up to Alaska?
1: Um, I moved up in 2004 um, to, to finish school. Um, and yeah, I finished my undergraduate at UAS and uh, did a master's in teaching program and um, then got married and had a couple kids and, um, yeah, a couple, you know, several dogs and a couple houses and now I've been a life, uh, or I feel like I'm a lifelong Alaskan now, but, uh, yeah, kids are. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think if you move up here and your adulthood is spent here, that's, that's pretty close to, to most of, to most of your life. You can, you can call it a lifelong almost yeah. we moved up when I was five. So I didn't, I remember or there's some pictures of me catching catfish in Kansas, but I don't really have memories of really fishing until I got up here. And so like trout was just, you know, we were, we're trying for salmon. Yeah. You're you're using spinners and then you're catching these trout. Gosh dang. You know, so I didn't really have an appreciation for rainbows or, or cutthroats until later on, especially like when I started fly fishing, I thought, Oh man, these things are, these things are really, really cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think my, when, when my deep passion kind of really took off for trout and salmon is when, um, you know, I always, I was, I was into fly fishing, but never like as serious as I was once I moved to Alaska. And then uh, within a year I started working as a fly fishing guide and I did that for um, 17 years. Um, some of that time running the the business um, and, you know, doing all the paperwork and admin stuff, but still getting out in the field a lot and, yeah, that's what uh, really drove a lot of my passion, and that's what started um, my involvement with TU initially. So. Where did you guide? Um, for Bear Creek Outfitters out of Juneau. So okay. we do, um, well, I guess it's not we anymore, but uh, <laughs> they uh, do day, uh, half-day and full-day fly-out trips um, out, of, out of Juneau, um, fishing all over Chichagoff and um, at all of Admiralty, a lot of the mainland, you know, Chilcat Peninsula and near near glacier bay um you know both sides of link Canal, south past juneau kind of a wide swath so i got a good chance to not only fish in all these places but see them from the air flying over at low altitudes and yeah getting to spend a lot of uh, boot, uh, time with my boots on the ground and um
0: taking people fishing and enjoying it myself yeah that's awesome was it mostly like off the cruise ship type stuff or was it people that were going up and booking at a lodge or something like that and flying out Yeah, a little
1: bit of both, Um, you know, during the, you know, COVID changed things quite a bit, but um, you know, 2019 and, and, previous, um, you know, it's probably, you know, a good chunk of the business was cruise ship related. Uh, we, we had contracts with the cruise lines and sold trips through there, but um, took a lot of independent bookings too. And then uh, post COVID, you know, it's 100% independent bookings and, um, you know, things from, you know, certain lodges in Southeast that don't uh, specialize in fly fishing. They'd call me up and I'd go out there and take clients from those lodges or um, servicing yachts, um, flying out to really cool faraway places to pick up folks off a yacht and take them fishing, um, someplace. And, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of DIYers that are looking to come up to Southeast from, you know, Minnesota a lot and, uh, and Wisconsin and everywhere else, um, around the world and, uh, you know, to go fishing with us for a day and then spend a lot of time fishing the road system in Juneau.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The stereotype with someone on a yacht would be, I guess there's two stereotypes: either super humble, super nice, and they can just throw money at it in a good way, and they're really appreciative, and then also snobby, uppity. You know, no fish is big enough; it can't be beautiful enough. What was your experience with that?
1: Um, probably a little bit of both. Um, I mostly on the humble side. Um, you know, some of the you know the most wealthy folks, the you know the professional sports teams, owners, and that sort of thing. Those guys are way more humble than i would ever imagine them to be and um, some of the folks that you never heard of you know it, those are the ones that tend to be a little bit more snobby i suppose but um like altogether i think we always got the cream of the crop of tourists uh, coming to southeast and you know i can't say uh, too many bad things about you know very the, the 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 few times that folks um were snobby those stand out um but more often than not it's you know very
0: humble good people that appreciate um, getting to be out and and learning about the place i've never been a guide but i have some friends that are guides and they've said that in many cases athletes tend to be pretty good because they understand that they have to learn this skill in order to be good at it they understand that it's not just a matter of showing up and being good so um they, they love the challenge they love being new and working through stuff and they'll listen to the feedback um but yeah, still, man, as a teacher taking my, my summers and and also teaching people how to fish, man, I just, I like having those summers to myself so I can just do what I want to do, man. It's, it's, it'd be tough, but, uh, yeah, I do get the teaching thing.
1: Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I'd say that's been my experience too. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's the beginners that tend to be pretty good listeners too, because it's all new to them. And, um, you know, or the the person that you know. A lot of times, spouses will try to help their spouses, and that doesn't work out so great. And then they hear somebody else telling them, and that works out a lot better. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, what's what's the road system like up there? I know that you got a couple rivers up there, and you have a terminal run of kings. Um, is there quite a bit uh, to to keep you busy up there? Is it pretty crowded at the available spots? It's down here in Ketchikan. There's a few spots on the road system, and they just get. Kind of hammered, and if you have a skiff you can get out to some outlying type stuff but um what what's the what's the fishing like up there
1: oh i I mean I think it's pretty great i mean you could you could fish only the road system and you'd think um you had a really great year i mean when you get out in a in a skiff or an airplane to a remote spot you know the the fish are going to be a little more wild because they might have they' probably never seen a fly before and mm-hmm and um probably bigger fish but it's pretty good fishing like right now in juneau um you could fish pretty much anywhere on the shoreline and, and find dollies um you know at the mouths of creeks and just um, roaming up and down the the Gasno channel um king fishing uh opens up this week on the on, on the first that one's a terminal harvest um but you know all the way out the road at the end of the road um, at uh, echo cove um for all the way to the other end of the road at Thane and all around Douglas Island, there's tons of great places. Um, right in the center of Mendenhall Valley is Montana Creek, which, um, it's very, very underrated, amazing uh, river with, um, a lot of different species salmon, good coho runs. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's steelhead are listed on the anadromous waters catalog, great dolly fishing, um, lots of humpies and, um, chum too. And, uh, there, you get occasional kings that um, might have strayed from the hatchery you'll find up there and those are always kind of a surprise on a 6 weight when you're fishing <laughs> your dollies and yeah uh, but uh, it's always it's it's a really good time and it's right in the middle of town so easy to access mm-hmm. lots of access points it's the only river that we have where you can shuttle you know get dropped off upstream and fish down to mm-hmm. to another vehicle and drive back up and
0: so yeah it's a it's a pretty great creek yeah. it's pretty interesting to have that right in town feel if it's if it's good fishing because it seems too accessible but then you think all right if i go back far enough, if this is just the way it was everything yep. we're not talking about terminal runs or hatchery runs it was all this is just what it was so the original people who were here benefited from it the first settlers came out they benefited from it it must be unbelievable to live here 150 200 years ago
1: oh yeah yeah and i think even yeah not pretty recently i don't the road system in juneau wasn't that developed out in that area too so like you know historically speaking it's a pretty new access to the river um, mm-hmm. so
0: yeah are you seeing more people coming up here to fish the road system i know there's a there's a steelhead river that's very well known in southeast alaska mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's really on the radar and a lot of people fly there and and, and go fish it but um have you seen more people going to, to maybe Juneau or some of these other areas for, um, for fishing, especially. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well um, yeah. A lot of, a lot of steel headers, um, you know, we, we don't have the, the volume of that, of, of that, of that river. Um, but um, you know, we have a lot of different runs that are all, you know, they could be, you know, some of them might be less than 10 or less than 20, Um, up to you know 50 or 100 or 200 but um, there's a lot of steelhead streams around here and typically you know like my guide season or my and my personal fishing season, you know, it just it's all good. It's all about run timing. So I'll have a, you know, might have a great day on one river and then I'll move to another river the next day, and it might be just a couple days behind. But you could you could definitely hop around to different places and and make make a really really great steelhead trip and be able to fish lots of different river systems along the way. Just have to have time and and access to you know a ride to get there basically. Yeah.
0: And, uh, I convinced a buddy of mine from California to come up and it was based on the previous two years had been wintered kind of ended and things started to crawl out of it and we had some nice warm water and uh, the water was up and so the fish were in there and so I convinced him to say hey, man come up at this time and he came up and wintered held on and we got two steelhead the first day. And then the water just dropped and it was really cold and fish hadn't really moved up yet. And so the run was, you know, about two weeks late. And I was like, man, I, yeah, I kind of bad because not that you want to get every single fish that's there, but there's a chance some of those weekends you can have, a, it can be a volume fishery where you're catching, you know, a number of them. It's not mm-hmm. just a thousand casts necessarily, but things are so different down here because Southeast outside of the mainland rivers, these rivers don't drain at the same acreage as some of those mainland rivers that have just a tremendous amount of volume and resident fish and everything. So like you said, it's, if you get a good rain, then you could be in good shape for a few days, but then mm-hmm. you know, they move, they move up, they move out, you know, they're, they do the things pretty, uh, pretty quick. So um, how have you noticed variation in timing? Is, is there like a certain weekend that you really look at and it's been pretty good if you look, you know, second week in April is usually really, really good or is it, you know, yeah. time in April or, or what do you got for, time? Um,
1: I think like the Northern panhandle, like more inside, it's more in May, like a mid May thing. Like we, we, I usually would tell people like May 5th through the 15th is kind of the peak window. Um, but, you know, it does vary from year to year. Like there's one um, steelhead stream that we land in a lake um, and fish down and that lake we couldn't land in you know, mm-hmm. until the end of June last year. Cause there's so, it was so cold and the ice was so thick Whereas the previous year I was fishing there on like May 1st. Um, so, you know, it, it does change like that a little bit. But yeah, I think the northern, more interior rivers are later. You know, some of those places, you know, are different too, where, you know, I've talked to old timers um, on Chichigoff that say they don't even start steelhead fishing till June. Um, but you know, even, you know, up, up in, up, up, a little further North in Yakutat, you, you might be fishing in March and, mm-hmm. and, and, and having good, you know, really good fishing some years I've been up there, you know, way early before other people and had some of the, you know, not some of like the best fishing days of my life, you
0: know, for steelhead.
1: Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's
0: crazy when you look at some <laughs> of those rivers down in California or Oregon, actually more. I don't even know about California anymore at all, but, uh, uh, legendary rivers in in Oregon and Washington. And, you know, you read some, some people from the fifties and sixties and you think, man, so many fish and so many fish and you didn't have to compromise on climate because it was, it was nice. And it was, you know, it's warm. California is such an amazing place, uh, climate wise, but you know, resource wise, it's just, there's nothing left. It's less than crumbs. Um, but then you can come up here and you can still have those, those days where it's, it just is, it's on. And the rivers are so much smaller and more intimate and you can have, you know, it's, it's just, they're all right here. It's not, okay, I'm going to have to make these really, really long casts to, uh, across massive water. And I have to know how to spay cast in order to make it work, man. Like, mm-hmm. You can, you know, jump across some of these little creeks that hold fish and it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. yeah That's Fish in some of these things.
1: Yeah, that's probably my favorite kind of you know. My favorite way to catch a steelhead would be you know a big fish in a really small creek. You know, and, um, had some really great days on creeks that I could have used a, a four a four foot rod to to fish for the day because you know you don't really need um, you know the switch rod or a nine footer to to do it, but some really great days. And those are some of the most beautiful streams. And I find myself, you know, even, you know, going to the sea tuck, I'm, I'm searching out those places like that within the sea tuck in order to, you know, find fish the way I want to find them um, sometimes. And um, yeah, it's, that's, that's nothing, nothing, not much better than that.
0: <laughs> yeah. There's a weird transition that happens when, you want to get as many fish as possible, and you really like that, but then you you really start to value fish on your own terms. And there's a spot here in Ketchikan that's everybody knows about. That's where everybody fishes. And I just don't like fishing it because there's going to be a lot of people there, and there's the best spot to stand, but then someone is going to be above you, or someone's going to drop in below you, and it just... I don't want to have to stand in the same spot. I want to feel like it's just not a matter of throwing casts out there. I want to be able to kind of find one and, and look at, and then look at the water and see how I'm going to make a cast to it. Yeah. When you are in some of those little rivers, how do you approach that? Do you, do you find the fish um, and then go up river and then just, you know, what what's the approach for that? Uh, what type of fly are you looking at? Uh, small fly, large fly, colored fly, What what's going on?
1: Yeah. um, You know, my, you know, uh, quite a few years ago, I made a trip to buy a vehicle in Seattle and I drove up and fished the Skeena systems. Um, You know, I I purposely gave myself some extra time to do like the Balkley and um, uh, Maurice rivers and stuff like that. And, um, you know, down there, the black and blue Dalai Lama is king and that's when I kind of fell in love with it. So my, uh, usually my go-to pattern is to fish one way upstream um, and then fish something else downstream. So I'll usually you know, nymph um, egg patterns you know, going upstream and then swing Dalai Llamas going down and might catch the same fish twice, but um, it's very productive <laughs> too. So,
2: After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint, that is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint.
0: What, uh, what kind of rod do you use? um i
1: my favorite is uh, i have an echo three switch a seven weight um and a lot depending on the river i i like to um use a a eight weight floating line sometimes you know just to if when i'm roll casting and that extra long rod helps you flick a little more line out and and reach some places um and then you know if if it's a bigger system then i'll i'll fish a you know a a two-handed line and and you know, go that way, but, um, I'm not as good as some of my friends are at, at two-handed casting. So I, I, you
0: know, maybe that's part of my preference for small creeks too, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I have a seven weight, uh, sage single hand that I use, uh, most of the time, but I really, really like, I have an echo, uh, a ten ten, echo switch rod. And it's so nice because some of those rivers, you're with your you mend, you can just really get a massive mend into it. Um, better on the if you do happen to have enough room for back uh back cast just strip strip in just a huge toss right back and a forward cast and just saves your wrist and shoulder and whatnot and um get a lot of control which is nice when you get some of those larger fish if it happens to be and there's a lip and there's some some rapids or something like that so i really really like my my, my switch rod so it's but yeah my casting is so gross <laughs> There's but nothing. the fish don't know
1: what the cast looks like yeah. that's what i always tell people <laughs> yeah
0: they don't care as long as you don't splash the water a whole lot uh well what do you think about splashing the water too much are you do you fish any cast that you that you throw out there or are you um worried about splashing the water too much with steelhead
1: yeah um but you know like uh, a lot of you know a lot of the clients that i've taken out have um over the years i'd say you know out of the maybe you know, several thousand people i've taken fishing maybe 80% of them is the first time they've ever mm-hmm. what, fly fished at all. You know, it's a bucket list. I, I saw a river runs through it. I'm in Alaska and I want to do this. I saw this on you know, offered. I want to do it. Um, and for them, you know, it's the, the teaching them to cast it, it. I keep it really, really simple. And there's a lot of water loading on the forecast. Um, cause they don't know how to pause and everything. And, Mm -hmm. and they're worried about splashing, but you know, most of these fish, especially in the fly out remote places, they've never seen a fly before. They've never seen line before the water's moving and they don't, you know, especially when it comes like dollies and cuts and salmon, They don't really seem to care, Um, and sometimes the steelhead don't either. You know, you might splash some awful cast in a hole, and and think, oh, there's no fish in there. And you throw a rock or something in, and you see, you know, a couple, two or three fish scurry out, and um, they obviously weren't spooked from the
0: cast; it was the rock. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So at some point, you start to, or at least I did. I'm sure a lot of people are too. You you realize that fish aren't endlessly abundant and you start to realize that hey if we want to keep having these things around um, we need to make sure that we're not ruining this resource and you start to pay more attention to what was in California and what was in Oregon and what was in Washington to think wow that might actually it's not just because we're in Alaska that's not going to happen so was there a moment for you when you started to worry more about or think more about the uh, the consequences of all this attention all this pressure all this fishing and then be a little bit more want to get more involved in the conservation side of it.
1: Um, yeah, uh, you know, I guess, um, for me, it was, uh, actually the the local trout unlimited staff in Juneau before I started working for TU, um, they're reaching out for some, you know, business and, um, supporter stuff. And I, I, um, I did a lot of volunteer work, um, you know, advocating for and lobbying for the Tonga 77 campaign, um, quite a while ago. And, um, that, you know, that was a, a major thing for me once I learned about what the T77 was, was all about and, and, um, how, you know, it made me think a lot more about some of those other places. And, uh, and that's what led me to working for TU eventually. Um, but, uh, yeah, it doesn't take, I mean, i I've caught a lot of steelhead in my, in my time. And there's a lot of my friends that have caught way more than I, but, um, you know, I, now I feel like I'm at the point where, you know, if I go steelhead fishing and one spooks out and I don't get to cast to it, and that might be the only fish I see for me, it's, it's just enough to know they're there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I've played with enough of them and seen enough of them that, um, I don't feel the the need to pull them out of the water to, you know, to appreciate them and enjoy them. So yeah. I still like catching them. Don't get me wrong, but, um, <laughs>
0: Yeah. It's nice to be able to be satisfied with like one good fish mm-hmm. and, and think, Oh, this is, this is great. I don't need to catch seven of them. Each single, every single one out of the hole, every single one has to be photographed and then do that <laughs> indefinitely. Not to begrudge anybody who's starting out who loves doing that. Cause I was the same thing. Like, Cause every fish is so unbelievably beautiful and it's mm-hmm. so different. So unique. I you just want to remember that. Um, I think a moment for me was when I was a little kid growing up on the Kluwak river, I remember the snags next to the shore and how it was so annoying because you couldn't get to certain areas. You couldn't get to certain angles. And I wish that people would just come in with, with chainsaws and remove stuff. And people did start doing that stuff. And I thought, well, thank goodness, you know, now we can fish it better. But then I started to realize, and that's where the fish that they need that that's where that's where they grow up that's where they're that's the safe um areas for them that's the the habitat for the for the fry to develop into smolt and then grow and it's not just a matter of where i want to cast and not getting my my flies or my my lures snagged up it's a matter of what's best for the fish mm. um so that was a moment and then the down south uh, reading about that was another another moment um and the habitat restoration and the habitat preservation is is super super important Mm -hmm. Um, have you fished the russian river Uh, not um the kenai but not the
1: russian um but yeah i'd like to at some point
0: it's it's crazy because they have and people are very annoyed about it on one side of the river and i think it's maybe the state owned or one side of the river is there are these um it's a elevated walkway and you can only access the river in certain spots where there's stairs so you can't just walk down the bank because they had to establish or they had to now replant the whole bank because you need that habitat for the fish. The other Mm -hmm. side, there's so many people all the time that the bank is just worn down. There's no vegetation on, on the bank. It's just like this, just slope. Mm
1: -hmm. And you think,
0: Oh, this is what happens. If there was, if people were allowed to just walk anywhere, you would have no important bank habitat. There would be nothing to preserve the runs. You would have nothing that would, you know, the fish need that habitat. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, it was astonishing to me. Um, the people I expected that it was, it was pretty crazy with the people, but just, you know, had they not done that this inconvenient thing for anglers accessing the water, um, you know, who knows where some of that, some of that population would be. Cause you have to have that. Otherwise the fish are going to live to be able to go out to the ocean, um, to be able to, to, to come back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, a lot of the, that's a lot of the work that we're um, doing right now, actually, um, with um, the, our restoration program and, um, you know, really getting into that. thats a, It's kind of a new, um, it's a transition and focus for TU in the region where um, previously it was more about advocacy and now um, we're, we're kind of joining the ranks of a lot of the TU um, chapters and programs in the lower 48 of restoration is, is, a, is a big priority right now. Um, a lot of that comes from the Forest Service uh, new initiative and, and look into the, look at the way they are approaching the forest, um, uh, um, with the priorities beyond, on um, restoration, um, recreation and resiliency, you know, to, to fix what, what's been broken, make sure that people can, you know, have fun and, you know, getting out recreating or subsistence fishing and, um, at the same time preserving those streams. So they're resilient to, um, you know, effects of climate, um, related issues like mudslides and, and, you know, we don't really have forest fires uh, in the, in the Tongass uh, quite yet, but, you know, just a couple of years ago, in those drought, drought times, you know, there's some, there's some serious threat and, um, you know, infestation from, um, you know, bugs and like the, the, um, the budworms and, and that sort of thing. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, you um, that are that are threats to those those the forests and and so that's the new direction for the forest. It's um, the Southeast Alaska Sustainability Strategy um, that was uh, really a twofold. There the are two main components of that. One being the uh, reinstating the roadless rule. Uh, which happened uh, recently, and the other part is the the sustainability strategy of getting folks together, um, speaking with communities and and locations on um, prioritizing rivers based on the need of the community, um, you know, businesses, uh, subsistence, recreational use, um, all that kind of thing, and and trying to really capture what what those communities want Um, like who like the 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 villages and um, you know even you know Ketchikan and Juneau the bigger cities as well Um, and and we're a pretty big part of that and um, trying to get people together and um, weigh in on what they think should happen with the forest and and be you know 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 what's going on right now too so um, yeah I've been doing a lot of business outreach and um, community outreach to to inform folks and let them know what's going on and hopefully they'll get involved in the, in the process.
0: Yeah. It's such a, everything is a lot closer here. You know, someone who is a commercial fisherman, you know, someone who's a charter fisherman. And sometimes those people are at odds, you know, someone, or, you know, a family who is either in logging or was in logging, you know, someone who is maybe in resource extraction, like mining, like it's all, it's very, very close. It's not some sort of someone else out there some you known face that i can't even recognize like you know and so it's really important to have that sort of input and feedback yeah. so it can be used in a responsible sort of way the old logging practices and a lot of the old mining practices it's just not it's not going to work uh we're not going to be able to have both things we're not going to be able to both have responsible sustainable logging and or we we have to try it for, for, for responsible <laughs> uh, logging we can't just do some of those old practices that were just destroying the habitat for the fish. We shouldn't be in a position where you have to choose either logging or fish. We have to figure out a way to be able to coexist.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and things, you know, what we know has changed a lot too, like what you were talking about, um, you know, pulling, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the the forest service, you know, the, they were telling the loggers to, that they needed to pull these trees out or the forest service was doing it themselves was pulling the trees out of the river. Cause at the time that's what was thought to be the best, best way and now we're we're going around to these rivers and installing logs and pulling <laughs> pulling trees down with root wads into streams to help create habitat that wasn't able to be created because of the last you know 20 years of of um you know clear cuts in you know near the the stream corridors you know so no there's no trees to fall into them in some places so um yeah and 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 getting those communities to not only um, Way in, but to take part in the process too has been really great and really, um, really cool to not only that the Forest Service is seeking that out, but that people are joining and and being a part of that process.
0: Yeah, moving together together or moving forward together is going to be so important. I mean. <laughs> There could be a lot of finger pointing if you went back in that. uh, If if you were really interested in in finger pointing, you could do that for a long time. Uh, Sea Alaska did a lot of logging, and they've they've adjusted and they've moved to to more kelp, sustainable farming, and that's great. Uh, Good ideas are good ideas, regardless of where they come from. So, listening and and working with people is important going forward, other than being or rather than being just a consumer.
1: Yeah. And if, you know, if you vilify, you know, every single person involved in logging and don't listen, don't listen to them, then you, you might be missing out on some, you know, a, a, not only a key piece of information or historical knowledge, but those, um, a lot of those folks that with logging experience are the same folks that are being hired now to do restoration work. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you know, that's the, you know, the restoration economy is, is it's real and it's um, there's, there's money for it and there's jobs available. And whereas, you know, in a lot of those places, the logging jobs just aren't, aren't there anymore. So Mm -hmm. um, they can still use those skills that they learned. And, um, you know, and some, and sometimes we're, you know, Trout Unlimited with other partners is putting through uh, putting together workshops to teach people to use, you know, the chainsaw winches and the strategies for restoration in a way that is that they, that they can be useful and, and, um, and train other folks and, and, uh, do the restoration work in their backyards, literally. So,
0: yeah, I remember growing up in in Kloak, uh, Tons of logging was going on in Prince of Wales, Coffman Cove, and Thorn Bay were just logging towns. But when the logging went out, and the pulp mills shut down in Ketchikan in 1996, I think. Um, you know, those communities had to adjust and pivot. And you know, Coffman Cove is a is a thriving little community, which is great to see. You know, people thought that there'd be nothing left because logging is going out there's nothing nothing worth saving there's nothing worth there's no reason to be there same thing with thorn bay so they've had to adjust um and for a lot of people it's been good like you said there's mm-hmm. other opportunities that come it's not a matter of this is gone and there's not going to be anything else a lot of people in Ketchikan too were able to to pivot from the pulp mill logging industry into different avenues and now we're you know just totally at the mercy of the tourism uh, uh, mm-hmm. in cruise ships and so there's going to be have to we're going to have to have conversations about the sustainability of that and how many people can we really actually have in here because mm-hmm. it's not resource extraction but it is resource use and how much is too much there's is, was there a ballot measure or something up there where, where juno was considering capping the, the the tourists per day or yeah
1: or there was a movement, um, by a group in Juneau to try to cap that. Um, but I think the, their, the goals for that group might not have there, they might've been pretty far off of what the, the goals of the, um, tourism, um, groups had. And so it's hard to find a, a compromise there. Um, but I think that, you know, this, it was, it was the minority as well, but, um, yeah, there was a movement, but, and it did, you know, it opened up debate and discussion about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And People are thinking about it now and um, you know, they might look at a year like this year where, you know, we're, we're slated to get the most cruise ship passengers ever. And they might, you know, have some difficulties and come back and realize like, yeah, maybe we do have too many or, you know, conversely, maybe um, it gives um, lots of, you know, some other folks an opportunity to create new business ideas that can, you know and that's you know approach a different area of the forest and use it in a different way that nobody else is doing and you know then we could have a you know bigger you know a little bit more broad um, multi-use
0: forest Mm -hmm. what would you recommend for someone who likes to fish Um, how can they get involved what would you recommend be a first step for them for maybe taking some responsibility for uh, for the resource going forward Uh, You know, fish handling is key, you know, especially when we're
1: talking about steelhead, Um, you know, as, as much as they are very big, very strong, very um, impressive uh, species, um, you know, they're still delicate too. And if you're, the way you handle, you know, making sure that you have rubber nets to land them in and, um, you know, not exposing them to air too long, holding up for pictures over the water, um, not over rocks or inside your boat, you know, one, one bounce off the gunnel of your boat might kill a fish that you, that you might've been your only steelhead you've ever caught in your life or your first one or most amazing one, or, you, you know, it loses that, you lose that opportunity to tell a story to somebody. If you, if you don't handle it right and, mm-hmm. and if you handle it right, you know, the good chances are the next time you go back, there's going to be more of them there to begin with. So yeah, I think fish handling is, is one thing that folks can get into. Um, and it doesn't take any um, I mean, it does take a certain amount of skill, but you don't have to like learn how to cast and learn how to tie flies in order to handle fish. Well, so
2: yeah.
0: What about as far as organized things? Is there uh, uh, Trout Unlimited um, events going on? Is there a website to go to, social media, things like that, if they want to take that next step?
1: Yeah, yeah. So for the Tongass campaign, the, the social media channels are American Salmon Forest. Um, and you know, just uh, last week, um, uh, no, two weeks ago, we had our community casting night here in Juneau. Um, where the Alaska Fly Fishing Goods that's uh, a local fly shop here in Juneau, run by uh, Brad Alfers. He's um, a good guy, I've had him on the
0: podcast a few times.
1: Yeah, I love Brad, uh, great dude. Um, he brings a bunch of rods down for folks to try out, and um, you know, the. Trout Unlimited we have some rods that you know that we can use and we borrowed some rods from Bear Creek Outfitters and I believe we had you know close to 100 people between volunteers and, and people coming down to learn how to cast um, at, uh, at Twin Lakes Park a couple of weeks ago and you know folks were playing in the playground they come came over and say what's this I'm like come on grab grab a rod I, you know we had I had a bunch of echo geckos for kids to try out and learn how to cast and I had some casting competitions um, for accuracy and distance as well for folks that wanted to try that and um, yeah, that was pretty fun. And we've uh, we've discussed now doing month- monthly uh, meetups at um, certain spots in Juno. Uh, to do some stream cleanups. And then, you know, we'll, we'll schedule those around like when the fishing will be good, possibly, or, or good chances of catching fish in those spots. So do a little river cleanup and and hopefully we'll have a you know a group of people together that can go and fish and learn from each other. There's a lot of new folks um, that moved to town uh, that I met this winter uh, during our Bar Flies events um, that uh, is hosted th- uh, with the local chapter as well as um, alaska fly fishing goods uh does a lot of help uh, a lot of work to help us out with that Uh, so monthly we're meeting at different um, bars around juneau and having these bar fly events and you know um, i led a handful of them some other folks led the the tying at those nights and we'd tie a fly and you know we have a bunch of vices and Um, you know, the one night at, um, we were the only people in the bar, it was totally dead, when we walked in, and by the time I was ready to leave, there there was about 150 people in there, and everyone was crowded around all these tables, trying to learn how to tie flies, and seeing what's going on, maybe, maybe they didn't come for the tying night, but they came in, saw what was going on, and they got interested after that, and um, might have sat down and tried to learn something, so a lot of those folks, they're asking the same kind of questions you're asking, and that's when we started talking about like getting together once a month for a, a stream cleanup slash fishing um, opportunity for for people to meet new people and learn new new a new stream and and take care of it while we're there. Awesome. Well,
0: yeah. thanks, man. Uh, it's great stuff. I really appreciate you being on here, taking some time out of the uh, out of your day, and um, where you're uh, heading fishing next. Um,
1: well, I'm actually down in Minnesota right now visiting some family. Um. And um, we've got plans to fish for some walleye on okay. Lake this weekend. This awesome. coming week, so that'll be the next one. And then, um, and then when I get home, I, I think I'll be spending a lot of time on my boat uh, catching some kings. Oh, that's
0: great, man! That's awesome. Well, uh, good luck. Enjoy the Lower Forty Eight. Get uh, get some food that you can't get in Juno down there. Enjoy it, and then uh, uh, safe travels and and have fun catching your
2: kings. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. it. Take care. You too.